just to kind of throw an overall broad summary of where we've been coming from, what's been going on through the book of Isaiah, if I had to sum it up in one way, I would sum it up that there is only one God, and he's made that clear, and that he's sovereign. He does what he wants to do, and who can turn his hand away? Um, that's kind of what he's been going through. He's been going through a lot of, uh, you guys are worshiping false gods, and I'm the only God. I'm the only God because I created. I'm the only God because I can tell you what's going to happen. All these things are within my hand, and, and he kind of went through that, even through what we looked at um, over the last couple of weeks in Isaiah. And so this morning we're going to start in verse 14, and we're going to finish out um, Isaiah 45 together. And so we'll read all of it. It's, it's several verses, but we'll go ahead and read it, and then we'll kind of go back and look at it and kind of take it in chunks and see a little bit about what's going on. And really, um, you know, when we look at Isaiah 45, it's good to understand, you know, exactly what's happening, but I know if you guys are anything like me, it's like, okay, we're talking about Isaiah, and Isaiah talks about a lot of prophecy and stuff, and so what does that got to do with me? Like, it's really cool to know, but what do I do with that? And so I think you're going to see when we go through Isaiah how it still applies today and what we can take from it and, and not just look at it and it's like, okay, well, this is who God is, but also this is what God's still doing. Um, and so I hope that you can kind of see that as we go through it. So Isaiah 45, starting at verse 14, says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and shall be yours. And they shall follow you, and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you. And they will plead with you, saying, Surely in you, surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together, but Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it, he established it, he did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth, I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed, all who were incensed against him. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And that's a lot of verses, and that's a lot of stuff going on. And so what I want to do, like I said, we're going to kind of take this in chunks and kind of look at it a little bit and, and see what is being talked about here. Um, but for me, like, 
it's good to understand a lot of the details, but sometimes I feel like we can get lost in details and we can miss the big picture. And so my prayer is today, even if you don't understand all the little things that are going on, that you get the big picture. And I think the big picture is going to be pretty clear. Um, so let's look at it together. We'll look at verses 14 and 15. It says, Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush, the Sabians men of stature shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you, and they shall come over in chains and bow down to you, and they will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other God besides himself. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God, the is O God of Israel, the Savior. And so the interesting thing here is, you know, we know there's a lot of prophecy in Isaiah. There's some, a lot of things that God has said. This will take place. Um, we know that, you know, just in the last few verses we've looked at, he's like, hey, you guys are about to go into captivity. Um, you're going to Babylon. You're not going to like it. You know, everything's going to get destroyed. Um, this is coming. And so we know that God has been... Uh, saying a lot of things like this and so here he gives some words that if I mean Israel could take this as like oh this is awesome Um, Egypt and Cush and the Sabians like they're all going to come and be enslaved to us like this is going to be great Um, but that's not what he's saying even though that kind of appears to be what he's saying uh, because we have seen nowhere in history where this has happened and so what's the Lord saying here you know, he, is, is he given a prophecy that, hey, Israel's going to be ensla- or Egypt's going to be enslaved to Israel? It's like, no, that's not what he's saying. And so we have to kind of look and, and see what he's tagging along with that. Because if we just take those verses, that would appear to be what it is. Um, but it says, they will plead with you, saying, surely God is in you. There is no other, no God besides him. And so what, what the Lord is telling us here is he's showing that other nations are going to seek him out. And, and again, we think about Israel and kind of um, who they were as God's chosen people and how God chose to work through them. And, and there's a lot of times where, you know, the people of Israel can think that we're the only ones that God cares about. We're, we're, the, we're the only ones that he's given covenants to, that he's made promises to, and nobody else is getting these things. And we see that a lot, especially when you go into Jesus's day. Um, there's a lot of pride with the the Jews that hey we're the chosen and the Gentiles are just a bunch of dogs and we don't care nothing about them um and so here God is showing us that people were going to come and and it's kind of neat the way that he shows it because he's talking about Egypt he's talking about uh, the merchandise of Cush and and the Sabians the men of stature and so he's talking about these people that Israel knew I mean Israel was enslaved in Egypt for a long time they knew the wealth that Egypt had they knew these people they knew what they had, what they had done, what kind of stature they had. And God says these people are willing, if you take what he's saying, they're willing to lay all that down to know the one true God. They're saying, man, there's nothing worth as much as God is. That they're willing to come over, they're willing to give up all their treasure, they're willing to even enslave themselves to know the God that is working in Israel. Who is this God? We have not known him. And we want to know him, and we're willing to give up everything that we have to know him. And it made me think about uh, Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8, where Paul says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing 
Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And we see the heart that Paul had. He said, all this great stuff that I have that I've accomplished, like all of this is just garbage compared to knowing who Jesus Christ is. And we see that kind of in action. And here, this is what the Lord's talking about. He's talking about these countries of great wealth and, man, how this, it's nothing compared to who he is. And, you know, if we take that and apply it to our lives, like what do we hold above the Lord? What do we hold as more valuable? And we would say, well, there's nothing. But what do our actions say? Do our actions say that we have, hold things that are more valuable than the Lord? Whether they're possessions, whether they're relationships, whether they're our time, you know, what are we putting before the Lord? And here, you know, when we read verses like this, man, we should be willing to lay all that down and say this is all garbage compared to knowing the Lord, compared to knowing you, the one true God. Like nothing compares to that. And so he's kind of making that case. And he talks about, in verse 16, that truly you're a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. And then he says, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. And so again, he's, he's talking about this, one, a God who hides himself. Um, you know, the people of Egypt and all those days. And you know, I've thought about that quite often because when you go back and you look at the Exodus story and how everything happened and how, you know, Israel was enslaved for so long and then Moses came along and, and he confronted Pharaoh and he's like, hey, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I'm not letting them go. And then God does all these plagues. Like, they saw that. The people of Egypt saw that. They went through all the suffering. They saw the death. They saw the destruction. They saw the loss of Pharaoh's army. And yet, they still didn't pursue God. And you think, wow, how could that even happen? You know, if, if you lived in Egypt of that day and you saw this that was going on, and it's like, Moses' God is doing this? Like, I need to kind of know who this is because I want to be on his good side and not fighting against him. Um, but that's not where we found him. And, and, and here it kind of it, it shows us, you know, you're a God who hides himself. It's like their eyes weren't opened. Even through all of that, their eyes weren't open to see who, who the Lord truly was. But God says, a time's coming. And they're going to be willing to lay everything down. They're going to, they're going to want to pursue me. Um, there's a time coming where they're going to recognize who I am. And then the, the makers of idols, he says they're going to be put to shame and confounded. And we've been hearing this over and over and over through Isaiah as, as God compares himself to the worshipers of false gods of how I'm the only true God, I'm the only one. And all these people are, that are pursuing false gods, that are making idols, these people are going to be put to shame. They're going to be the ones that are, that are confounded. Um, they're going to go together in confusion because they're chasing something that's false. So the interesting thing to me here in verse 15 he says, truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. This is how God is kind of talking about himself, the God of Israel, the Savior. Um, and, you know, my mind kind of thinks sometimes, you know, what did Israel think about that, that God says, I'm the Savior? Um, 
we know they had hope in that, but at the same time, you know, they felt chosen. And so, you know, did they recognize their need of a Savior, even though God had, had chosen them? And so you, you kind of think about that. Um, and is God only talking about Israel? When, when we look and it says, um, O God of Israel, the Savior, like, is he only speaking of Israel? Or is he speaking of everybody else? Because he just said, the people of Egypt are coming. They're, they're going to come and seek me out. But then he's the God of Israel, the Savior. And, and so I was kind of thinking about that. Um, and I, I think a lot of times when we read through, especially Old Testament, we have to kind of separate the nation of Israel from the children of Israel. Um, the, for instance, the nation of Israel, they were taken into captivity. It was all the people of Israel. Like, it was, it was an ethnic group that were taken into captivity out of their own land. Um, but when we talk about salvation in Israel, my mind went to Romans 9 in verses 1 through 8, and so I want to read those for us. Because there are some mysterious things as we understand the New Testament more that we kind of realize who we are um, in Christ. Romans 9 verses 1 through 8. This is Paul writing. He says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not those the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be, be named. And get this, this means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God but the children of promise are counted as offspring. And so Paul understood that when God talks about Israel and salvation, that, as he says, it's not because of where you were born. It's not the children of flesh who, who belong to Israel. It's not the children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But it's the children of promise that are counted as offspring. And so, you know, when we see these things where, you know, man, Israel's going to be saved and, and God's saving Israel, we have to realize that he's talking about us. We're the children of promise because of faith in Jesus Christ, because of what he did, that we are part of this promise. We are part of, of what God is promising here. This eternal salvation, it belongs to all who have faith in Jesus. And it's not just an ethnic group. And just because you're part of an ethnic group, it doesn't mean you're going to have faith in Christ. Um, and, and so we have to kind of realize that as we're going through this, that when he talks about a God who saves and an everlasting salvation, he's talking about us because we are the children of promise because of faith in, in Christ. It's not because of, of who we were born to. And he goes on. Verse 17, it says, But Israel saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation, and you shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity 
And again, we, we look at this, and it's a contrast between those who are worshiping false gods and those are who, wor- who are worshiping the one true God. Well, what he says about the ones who are worshiping false gods is that they will be confounded. They will be put to shame. This is their destiny. But yours is not. You will not be put to shame. You will not be confounded. There's that, that contrast and difference. And he, he talks about, again, that, that Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. And the reason he can promise an everlasting salvation is because of who he is. And like I said, we've talked about this, and then he's going to kind of go into this again. Um, you know, how is it the Lord can talk about eternity and what's going to happen in eternity? Well, it's because he's an eternal God. He lives outside of time like he's always been and he always will be. You know, if he had a time, then he couldn't promise eternal salvation. He couldn't promise eternal life or eternal death. Um, but he doesn't have a time. He lives outside of that. And so God is eternal. And he can promise an eternal salvation because it's within his right to do that. And if we go on, uh, verses 18 and 19, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And again, he's, he's going and he's talking about this argument of, I am the one true God because of this. You should know it because of this, because I'm creator, because I've done these things. The idols that you were worshiping, they didn't create. They didn't make anything. In fact, you made them. You know, I, I thought about making one and bringing in here just to show you guys how ridiculous it is. Um, but I'm not a very good craftsman, so I can't really build much of nothing. Uh, but I really wanted to make like a little wooden thing and, and show you like this is how ridiculous it is to worship a false god, to worship an idol. Um, I guess we could we could use a pen. I didn't make it, but, you know, you could make that a god. Like, you could bow down and worship this pen that was mass-produced if you wanted to. It's ridiculous, right? That's kind of what the people were doing. They were fashioning themselves idols and bowing down before it. And, and you guys know, as we went through this, God made, he made that comparison. How ridiculous is it that you go cut down a tree and you burn part of it to keep yourself warm and out of the other part you carve an idol and you bow down to it? Like, that's ridiculous. But yet people were doing that. And that's where people's hearts were. And God says, I'm the only God because I'm the one that created. I'm the one that made that tree that you're worshiping. I'm the one that made you. Why don't you worship me? I made you. And again, he's talking about that as he talks about creating. or creating. He says, thus says the Lord, he created the heavens. Even where he's at, he created everything. He formed the earth and he made it but he made it to be inhabited. And if you think about that, that's kind of neat because if you look at creation, I don't know if you guys ever go out at night on a nice clear night and look at the stars, how many there are, and you think of the billions and billions of suns and planets and things that are floating around in our galaxy and how huge it is. And yet God made this earth for us to live on 
He made this for a specific reason. He made the earth the way it is so we can live on it. You know, how many planets have this kind of atmosphere and this kind of water and this kind of vegetation? Like, there's none other. You know, God formed this, and he formed it on purpose, and he formed it to be inhabited by his creation, which is us. He gave all of this to us, and yet we look at it, and we miss out on who God is because we worship the creation rather than the creator and it's it's messed up um romans 1 verses 18 through 25 guys are probably really familiar with these passages for the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth for what can be known about god is plain to them god because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they, because, or, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the Glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Amen. Those verses always come to mind anytime we go back and we read about people worshiping idols. Just how ridiculous it is that, that Somebody would take something that is created and want to bow before it rather than the one who created it. Rather than the God who created everything that we see, we want to bow before things. And, you know, again, um, if we took a poll, we would probably find that 0% of the people in here have a tiny statue in their house that they bow down and worship. Like, that doesn't happen in our day. But we worship many other things. And we do it, again, because of where our heart is, because of the things that we see as important. You know, it may be wealth. You know, money may be your God. That may be the thing that, that you long for, that you strive after, and that, that's central to everything that you do is to get more money. Well, that's a created thing. I mean, that's man-made. You know, we made that so we could exchange it and buy things. It, it's a piece of paper, or now it's a bank transaction on my phone. You know, I don't even see money now. I just get to scan a card and I get stuff, you know. And we pursue that. And if someday somebody decided, you know what? That dollar's not worth anything. Then what have you got? You know, you've got nothing. But these are the things that we pursue. And we forget about the God who's created we forget about the God that made us, the God that holds our future in his hand, the God that is judge over right and wrong. Like, that's not the God we want to worship. We want to worship, you know, the God that, that we want. Um, and it's just as ridiculous as making a statue and putting it on your shelf and bowing down before it. Um, and so we still do these things. In verse 19... He says, I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say 
till the offspring of Jacob seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. And I, I really like how we can look at this and then look at the verses in Romans and see that. That God, he didn't do these things in secret. When God created, I mean, can we not look and see that he's created? That, that this, this place we live, like, it come from somebody. Like, this was not an accident. And I know some, you know, the scientists, they'll, they'll tell you, man, there was, a, there was once nothing, and then nothing exploded and made everything. And somehow we're supposed to believe that. And just how perfect everything has to be for us to be able to live. And to think, oh, well, that was an accident? No, God created that. God created everything. And we should be able to look outside and see, man, God made this. You know, how am I even able to breathe in air and breathe out, you know, breathe in oxygen, breathe out carbon dioxide, and, and I'm living? Like, how does that even work? You know, that's ridiculous, but that's the way God made it. You know, that wasn't an accident that, oh, you just happened to be formed on a planet that had it, you know, atmosphere full of oxygen, so you evolved to breathe oxygen. Like, no. <laughs> like, like, God did that on purpose. And we can't look at that and see that, oh, God did this. You know, it, it seems absurd when we think about it. God, he says, I didn't do these things in secret. I, I did it to where you can see. I did it to where you can see that I've created. I did it to where you can see that, that it's me that has done all of this. He's not hiding from us. He's not trying to, to play hide and seek. Um, he's made everything obvious. And I, I look at verse 19. I did uh, kind of look at some other translations. And the, the New Living Translation, it, it had kind of a neat um, translation of verse 19. So I just want to read it for you. He says, I publicly proclaim bold promises. I do not whisper obscurities in some dark corner. I would not have told the people of Israel to seek me if I could not be found. I, the Lord, speak what is true and declare only what is right. And I kind of like that because that kind of puts it more to where I understand what's going on. God is not doing things in secret. He's not doing things in the darkness. He's not telling people to seek him if he can't be found. Like, how terrible would that be? You know, for, for God to say, hey, come find me. But yet you can't find him. I mean, he, that's not our God. And so we go to verse 20. Verse 20 and 21 says, Assemble yourself and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nation. <clears throat> they have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me. The righteous God and a Savior, there is none besides me. And again, we're going back to this courtroom scene. And we've kind of talked about in Isaiah. We, we've seen this come up several times. But, but it's kind of a, a courtroom scene to where you've got two sides. You know, there's always two sides on every courtroom. 
and they both present their evidence for a judgment to be made. And that's what God's saying. He, he's saying, all of you who, who want to worship another God, all of you guys get together. Y'all get together, figure out what story you want to bring, and y'all come together and present it, and we'll see who the true God is. And I just think it's kind of neat, um, you know, just the way this is worded, that, that this is God. I mean, he knows he's the only true God. And so, you know, he's, he's not challenging one of us. Hey, why don't you come and, and bring your case? He's, he, he's challenging everybody. Hey, all of you makers of false gods, y'all all get together. Come present your case. You have none. You have no case before me. I am the only true God. <clears throat> and again, he's laying that out. And why, is, why does he keep repeating this? Um, you know, I kind of think back to like when my kids were little and we would watch children's shows, which were, I don't know who wrote these things, but man, these people were doing some crazy drugs or something. Some of those old shows are weird. I mean, y'all have seen them. They're just weird. Teletubbies, like what is that? Nobody even knows what those things are. But in a children's show, if you noticed, they're always repeating something, and they repeat it, and they repeat it, and they repeat it. Why do they do that? It's because that's how we learn. The more we hear things over and over and over again, the more we retain it. You know, if a Teletubby jumped up and, you know, told you to, well, whatever they told you, I don't know what they even told you to do. You were a baby. Um, you know, be nice or what, I don't know. But, but they would say it, like if they said it once, it would just kind of end one ear out the other, right? But they say it. It's just over and over and over, and, and you retain that. And, and I kind of feel like God's treating us like a bunch of babies. You know, it's like, man, you guys are not getting it. I am the true God. It's me. I'm the God. I'm the only God. I'm the one who saves. It's me. It's me. It's me. And he's just beating us with it because we're like a bunch of babies, and if he tells us one time, we're going to forget. Um, and so we're, we're reading this over and over and over again that there is no other God besides me. I am the only God. And he keeps making that case, and he's making it for a reason, because he's, he's going to talk about, and he has been talking about, being saved. And we see that in verse 22, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, there is no other. He is the only God that can save. He's laid out the case. There is no other gods. I'm the only one. And in that, I'm the only one with the authority to save. I'm the only one that can do this for you. There's nothing else that can save you. And like I said earlier, as we, as we began worship, save us from what? From what do I need to be saved? Because if I don't understand that there's something I need to be saved from, then I don't really understand why I need salvation. Why do, why do I need to be saved? And we read it. And there's judgment. Judgment based on your sin. Judgment based on everything you've done, every thought you've thought, every word you've spoke, every action, everything. Your dirty, rotten heart is going to be laid bare before the Lord, and you're going you're gonna to give an account for it unless you're covered with the blood of Jesus. That's what you're being saved from. You're being saved from judgment and wrath. You need to be saved from that. You're not going to stand. 
These people that are worshiping idols, they can't stand. They can't present a case to God that they are anything. You can't stand before God under his judgment and answer for your sin and think you're going to get away. You'll pay for all of it. That's why he had to send a son. That's why we need to be saved. Because we can't stand under that punishment of sin. And so he says, turn to me, all the ends of the earth. For I'm God, there's no other. By myself I have sworn. For my mouth has gone out in righteousness. A word that shall not return to me, every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall swear allegiance. Have y'all heard that somewhere before? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, I had it down here somewhere. It's in the book of Philippians. There it is. Philippians chapter 2, speaking about Christ. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's an event that's going to happen. Everybody is someday going to bow before Christ and say, you are Lord. And you're either going to do it as someone who knows him or someone who doesn't. But yet, he's getting his honor. <clears throat> and so, he says, turn to me and be saved. And so, I, I want to talk about this a little bit. Because, like I said, this is, the, this is the big picture. This is the point. Like, this is the point of everything we've been reading. Is that we need to be saved. What does that mean? What does that look like? How do we get there? Um, and so, I, I kind of was thinking about, you know, he's been talking about a lot of, false worship, a lot of false gods, people were bound before, and so I went and I did a little research on the internet, which is where all truth is, right? Um, if you Google it, that's not right, you all know that, but I don't have a lot of books, so I had to Google it, okay? Um, so according to some other religions, how do they teach that you're saved? Because we say we worship the one true God in their salvation this one true God but what do other people believe because again he's laying out a case that man there's some of you who are worshiping false gods I'm the only true God well what are other people thinking what do other people believe and so I just picked a couple of the big ones um Islam Muslims believe salvation comes to those who obey Allah sufficiently or who obey Allah sufficiently I should have put those together um that good deeds outweigh the bad Muslims hope to repeat, or hope that repeating what Muhammad did and said will be enough to get to heaven, but they also recite extra prayers, fast, go on pilgrimages, and perform good works in hopes of tipping the scales. Martyrdom and service to Allah is the only work guaranteed to send a worshiper to paradise. Buddhism, reaching nirvana, a transcendental, blissful spiritual state, requires the fo- requires following. The Eightfold Path, this includes understanding the universe and acting, speaking, and living in the right manner and with the right intentions. Mastering these and the other of the eight paths will return a worshiper's spirit to God. Hinduism, salvation is reached when the worshiper is freed from the cycle of reincarnation. His spirit becomes one with God. One becomes free by ridding oneself of bad karma, the effect of evil action or evil intent, and this could be done in three ways 
through selfless devotion <clears throat> to and service to a particular God, because they have many, uh, through understanding the nature of the universe or by mastering the actions needed to fully appease the gods. And if you guys notice, all of these religions have something in common. And it's something you have to do. There's something you have to do to this God, to appease this God, to where maybe he will look down and have favor on you. If you live a good enough life, if you, if you can put away all your bad vibes or whatever you guys want to call it, um, if you do enough work and you work hard enough, then maybe, maybe God will look at you with favor. Maybe you'll make it to heaven. <clears throat> Romans 3, verses 20 through 25, says, For by the, law, by the works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. That's the way God offers salvation. It's not through men live a good enough life put away evil, do whatever. It's not, it's nothing we can do. And we know this, but sometimes we forget it. But it reminds us, everybody's sinned. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. Everybody has wrath to pay. And you're not going to work yourself out of it. And if we think about, you know, going back to a courtroom scene, and you stand before a judge guilty, like, how are you going to bargain with the judge to not receive penalty? I mean, if, you're, if your crime is awful enough, you're not getting set free. You're like, you're going to pay. And we're going to stand before a holy God. There's no leniency. There's no, well, your sin really wasn't that bad. I mean, you go back to creation. He told Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. And they did. And all of mankind is cursed. We all face death because they ate from the wrong tree. I mean, this is God. This is how holy he is. You don't go against what he says. Because when you do, there's punishment. And you're not going to work yourself out of it. And so he offers this salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> um, just a couple more things I want to read for you guys before we close I'm trying to figure out what I want to give you um, this is going to be quite a bit of reading but this is really good because I was doing some research and I found a sermon that Charles Spurgeon taught on Isaiah 45:22. and if y'all know Spurgeon he's way better at this than I am um, then you guys know it and I know it so it's okay but I want to read this because He's talking about, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth. I'm God, there is no other. That's the point. That's the whole point of what we've got to today. Turn to me. Be saved. I'm God. There's no other God. <clears throat> so I'm going to read this, so y'all bear with me, okay? On Isaiah 45, 22. First, to whom does God tell us to look for salvation? 
Oh, does it not lower the pride of man when we hear the Lord say, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth? It's not. Look to your priest and be saved. If you did, there would be another God, and beside him there would be someone else. It's not look to yourself. If so, there would be a being who might be arrogant of some of the praise of salvation. But it is look to me. How frequently you who are coming to Christ look to yourself. Oh, you say, I don't repent enough. That is looking to yourself. I don't believe enough. That is looking to yourself. I'm too unworthy. That is looking to yourself. I cannot discover, says another, that I have any righteousness. It is quite right to say that you have not any righteousness, but it's quite wrong to look for any. It is looking to me. God will have you turn your eyes off yourself and look unto him. The hardest thing in the world is to turn a man's eye off himself. As long as he lives, he always has a propensity to, look, to turn his eyes inside and look at himself. Whereas God says, look unto me. There be men that quite misunderstand the gospel. They think that righteousness qualifies them to, become, or to come to Christ. And I love this saying, whereas sin is the only qualification for a man to come to Jesus. That's all we have to offer is our sin. But the second thought is the means of salvation. It is look unto me and be ye saved. You have often observed, I am sure, that many people are fond of intricate worship and involved religion, one they can hardly understand. They cannot endure worship so simple as ours. And I think we saw that when we looked at some of the other religions, just how much stuff is involved in those religions to be saved and how simple our religion is. The world likes a religion they cannot comprehend. But you have never noticed how gloriously simple the Bible is? It will not have any of your nonsense. It speaks plain and nothing but plain things. Look, there is not an unconverted man who likes this. Look unto Christ and be ye saved. If it would take me seven years to describe the way of salvation, I'm sure you would all long to hear it. If only one learned doctor could tell the way to heaven, how he would be run after. And if it were in hard words with a few scraps of Latin and Greek, it would be all the better. But it's a simple gospel that we preach. It is only look. Ah, you say, is that the gospel? I shall not pay attention to that. But why has God ordered you to do such a simple thing? Just to take down your pride and to show you that he is God and that beside him there is none else. Oh, mark how simple the way of salvation is. It is look, look, look. Four letters and two of them alike. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. Some divines want a week to tell you what you're able to do to be saved. But God the Holy, Holy Ghost only wants four letters to do it. Look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth. How simple is that way of salvation. And oh, how instantaneous. So a sinner believes in a moment, and the moment that sinner believes and trusts in his crucified God for pardon, at once he receives salvation in full through his blood. There may be one that came in here this morning unjustified in his conscience that will go out justified rather than others. There may be some here, some here filthy sinners, one moment, pardon the next. And it's done in an instant. Look, look, look how universal that is. Man, I think that is so, 
so much better than I could have put it. How simple is the gospel? Look unto Christ. Place your faith in him. In an instant, we're saved. There's nothing we have to do. There's nothing we have to work for. There's no steps that we have to go through. It's, it's believe. Put your faith in Christ. He went to the cross for you. That's the gospel. You're a sinner. You need saved. He's the only way. And I, and I love where he, he talks about how that just that takes away all pride. That takes away all arrogance. Like there's nothing we can bring but our sin to God. This is all I have to offer. And it's terrible. That's why we need to be saved. And so just to kind of finish this out, <clears throat> he says, By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who were incensed against him. In the Lord shall all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And so just kind of in closing again, talking about all the, all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. He's talking about us as believers. Everyone who places their faith in Christ has been justified. We have been made righteous before God. That's what it means to be saved. That you stand before God righteous, not condemned. Christ made you that way. You are justified. And I love that he closes out and says, and he shall glory. That we shall glorify God because of what he's done, because of the salvation that he's given, because I stand before him justified, not condemned, not facing his wrath, not facing that eternal punishment. Just a few verses to close. I'll read Ephesians 2, 8, 9 because it's a lot shorter. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. There's nothing we boast about except for God himself. That's the only boast we have. There's nothing we can boast in and of ourselves, any work we've done, any great righteous deeds we may have done, none of that we can boast before the Lord. We can only boast in the Lord because he's the one that saves, not us. Let's pray together.